Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Today I'm talking with Brian Kastner. He wrote the book Stampede, which is about the Klondike Gold Rush, and honestly it's one of the best books I've read this year. I really enjoyed it because it takes you right down to the very people who made the Gold Rush. It's based in history, but the story and the interactions between the characters is fascinating. It was fantastic. I loved it. Let's get right to the interview. Uh, what kind of got you interested in writing a book about the Klondike? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not, uh, I'm not a professional historian. I'm not an academic historian. And so it's, it's not like this was my area of expertise or something. I have a military background. I have a journalist background and I've done a lot of you know, stories about wars and stuff. But I'm also, I mean, just like anybody, I'm interested in a variety of topics. And I feel really blessed and lucky that I've been able to write about a, a lot of different things. And I, um, I do like the outdoors and I like travel. And the thing that appealed to me about, well, a couple of things appealed about the Klondike specifically. One is writing about the North, I find fascinating. I've written another a book called Disappointment River, where I followed Alexander McKenzie down the McKenzie River uh, to the Arctic Ocean. And that, in that particular case, I got to paddle the canoe and follow in his footsteps a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I like doing that kind of thing. But when I, I don't know, the Klondike for me, and maybe for you and for a lot of readers or other people, it's kind of this name you know, and you know, it's a little bit of a, like a brand perhaps. I mean, it's literally an ice cream bar, right? So it's, <laughs> True, yeah. it, it's this thing you've heard of, but the details of the story I was unfamiliar with until I read Pierre Burton's, um, you know, mm -hmm. kind of famous infamous history of it in the 1950s. And as I read through it, I guess I saw an opportunity as a storyteller 
or as a person who focuses on narrative nonfiction and tries to focus on characters and and plot and and telling that kind of a TikTok story, so to speak, I said, you know, there's a tremendous opportunity to kind of retell this story with modern eyes, with a lot of new research that's been done, not by me, but by you know professional historians that have really done a lot of work in the 60 years since um, Burton wrote. And, you know, I guess I, the thing that struck me was that the Klondike story is a disaster movie. It is <laughs> yeah. shipwrecks and avalanches <laughs> and murder and like all of these things, scurvy and, and starvation and like mm. just the, the scale of it, um, you know, that kind of, that kind of like, you know, extended human suffering, I guess not to put too fine a point <laughs> on it is something I've really tried to explore in a lot of my other writing. And there's enough material in the Klondike that you could recreate people's experience of it. Absolutely. Uh, and you, you did mention that you've written, you wrote another book uh, about the Arctic uh, with uh, Disappointment River. What, tell me about some of the other books that you uh, wrote uh, uh, before um, you wrote Klondike or Stampede. Yeah, my, my first book was called The Long Walk. And uh, in the I was in the U.S. military. I was a bomb disposal technician. I was a bomb tech, uh, we call it explosive ordnance disposal. And so I was taking part uh, roadside bombs and the truck bombs and, you know, doing that kind of work in Iraq. Um, and, and I wrote, that was my first book was kind of the story of doing that. Uh, but then also I had a lot of struggles coming home. And so it was, it was a blended story of both uh, fighting in Iraq and, and the trouble of, of reintegrating. I was not a professional writer before that. I kind of jumped in with both feet and into the cold part of the lake. And uh, I feel fortunate that that's how, once I, once I started with that, I was able to keep writing about the military magazine stuff. I wrote another book called All the Ways We Kill and Die, which is about a good friend of mine who was killed in Afghanistan in 2012 and the investigation into the bomb maker that built the bomb that and designed the bomb that, uh, you know, that hit his truck. But like I said, I, I'm interested in a variety of stuff. And I'm also a whitewater rafting guide. I'm a canoe guide. I, I spent a lot of time in the outdoors. And so I, I was hoping to write about more than just the war, right? And so it's, um, but, but kind of, I think I still bring that kind of um, maybe military veteran perspective to some of the writing and it's not just you know the misery of of some of these experiences which you get a lot of in the military but also you know the klondike was at least from an american perspective there were a lot of former civil war um, veterans civil war generals you know the, the story of the american western frontier is really a post-civil war story and americans viewed the klondike as like the last frontier even if mm -hmm. Dawson City itself was inside Canadian borders. There's a whole Alaskan component to it, right? So mm -hmm. I think, you know, looking at it through that lens and, and you know, understanding that it was a lot of veterans, um, George Washington Carmack, who is one of the people competing for credit in the discovery of, of the Klondike, he was a former U.S. Marine, right? So having that perspective, I think, you know, does, does change how I, how I write some of these stories. Um, reading it kind of, you dive right in with uh, the story about Robert Henderson, who I feel like he's like, he's like the Pete best of, of the Klondike. You know, he, he was there and just before it kind of takes off, he, 
he, he loses everything. Like he doesn't get, he doesn't get any gold. Like I felt really bad for the guy. I actually thought uh, he was a character that you kind of integrated into it. And then I felt really bad that he was an actual person that went through this. Um, were there any kind of favorite characters in this? Or when I say characters, I mean, obviously historical figures uh, that you, that you really liked or liked writing uh, about in your book. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's some people that I guess I had a natural affinity to. Tappan Adney is mm-hmm. um, is an obvious one. He was the correspondent for Harper's, uh, but he was also an avid outdoorsman and really learned that in New Brunswick. Um, I mean, he was an American that spent a lot of time in New Brunswick and then eventually served in the Canadian military in World War I um, and retired in New Brunswick. And so, like, I, I think because he's a writer and a journalist, I, I'm attuned to him. But actually, the character I have the most sympathy for is Anne de Graff, who was not looking for gold. She was looking for her son. And she was a widow and... Um, was sure her son who had gone missing would go on the gold rush. And so she goes herself and, you know, a lot of, everybody called her mother on the trail. She eventually, you know, becomes a bit of a mother figure for a lot of the women up in Dawson city who are working as dancers or, um, you know, as sex workers or in other ways. And so I think, you know, being a dad, I, I felt the, the parenthood, connection to her this idea that she would go on this incredible journey just to search for her son was mm-hmm. you know I guess really compelling for me um, from a Canadian perspective when we think of the Klondike you know we think of people like Sam Steele who you do uh, have in your book as well or um, just you know Dawson City and you know how it was a rough and tumble place and, and all of that um, but your story also kind of looks at the people who, who didn't have that success, like Robert Henderson, but especially Arthur Dietz and, you know, his journey over the glacier and just how, how unbelievably horrible that, uh, that was. Um, do you feel like this, is, this book can kind of show that, you know, the Klondike, yes, a lot of people did get rich, but for a lot of people, this was a, a very tough time in their lives. In fact, for some, probably the worst time in their life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, there was an economic depression right before gold was discovered. And a lot of people were looking at, um, you know, uh, they're making 10 cents an hour putting pickles in a jar or, or shoveling coal or something else. And the gap between rich and poor was enormous. And, you know, they were looking for a solution to their problem. And then the newspaper said, well, there's gold in the Klondike. And like, that would be, that would be the solution, right? But all of those inequities between rich and poor and the 99% who are poor and the 1% were rich just got recreated in the Klondike. And if you look at the numbers, something like 100,000 people probably went on the journey. Um, And you know, only about a third or 40% of them ever made it to Dawson City. So that's 60 or 65%, which is 60 or 60,000 or 60,000 people. Um, yeah, a lot of them turned back, but a lot of them died. And we have no idea how many died. And there were so many shipwrecks on the West Coast of BC, but eventually they just stopped printing them as stories in a newspaper. And of course, you had a lot of people that left Edmonton and tried to go up the front range of the Rockies. And, you know, only a handful of those people ever actually made it to Dawson City. We just we don't really have a good sense of of the loss of life. And then the people that got up there, you know, many of them just never even bothered 
trying to get a claim, um, you know, trying because all the best ones were taken, obviously. By the time they made the journey, people already up in the Yukon and Alaska had already made the best claims. And so Mm -hmm. there is a bit of a rise and fall of Rome tragedy to the story that, um, you know, maybe it wasn't a conspiracy theory, but it was a bit of a Ponzi scheme that the people who got in first made money and basically everybody else yeah, it was a, some people left with pride that they had taken such a journey and lived through it, but a lot of them left with nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's lucky people like uh, Jack London who can make a career afterwards based on their experience from the Klondike. But like you said, most uh, most <laughs> came back with nothing, uh, if that. Um, in Canada, obviously, the Klondike is very famous. Where I'm from, uh, I'm just outside of Edmonton. You know, we used to have Klondike days and we used to have the Klondike Kate competitions and all this. Um I guess compared, the only other one I can think of is maybe the California gold rush. Why, why is the Klondike still so famous? Why is it something that people still recognize, uh, uh, well, over almost 125 years later? Yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, the last and the greatest um, is, is the way it's often described. And it was really about the gold. I mean, in California, a lot of people were homesteading. They they wanted to go to California anyway, and the the mm-hmm. gold was a was a good excuse at the time. And the land had just been taken from Mexico, and there was this whole, you know, settlement aspect to it. Uh, people were not trying to homestead in Dawson City. It was really focused on on getting rich and getting rich quick. And when it comes to the number of people that moved in such a short period of time, it was extremely condensed. Um, it was to these extremes of geography, um, to the extremes of weather, of course. Um, it really combined a lot of these, you know, I guess, um, just like the, the absolute limits and the fact that people left into the teeth of winter. You know, you have this this iconic photography, of course, of people trying to go up the Chilkoot Pass and this kind of string of ants. I think all those things combined, the the modern communications Uh, the telegraph and newspaper stories about it, um, the photography that came out and just the, I mean, it was a bit of an epic of of its age, but it's also true, I think, that why did it become a legend? It was marketed as a legend almost immediately. I mean, gold was discovered in 1896. The, The stampede went from 1897 and 1898. And by 1899, there were already tourists and there were, they were already putting up hotels and uh, gambling dens and all these shows and everything else, not marketing it to prospectors, but marketing it to tourists who are coming up to experience this, mm-hmm. right? And so it was almost a myth from the beginning. And at least on, and on the American side, Teddy Roosevelt becomes president and, you know, there's a new century and people are looking forward to the future. And it's like the Klondike Gold Rush was an Old West myth from almost the moment it happened. Mm, Absolutely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Um, obviously, when you're writing the book, uh, there's certain people that it's kind of easy to include, like uh, Sam Steele or, um, you know, uh, Soapy Smith, like these very well-known, in some ways, extravagant characters. But how did you go about choosing who would be in this book? What, what people you would kind of open up their story? Yeah, that's a good question. I tried to, I mean, there's some figures that you almost like just have to include, like Sophie mm-hmm. Smith and Sam Steele. And the benefit of including them is, um, well, it's really what, you know, trying to find those lesser known characters too. Like there's been a lot of scholarship done. Sam Steele is, um, is a, you know, is a well-known person. Uh, Dr. Rod McLeod at University of Alberta has just has just written an excellent biography of him. There's all of his papers there at the University of Alberta. There's just a lot of material. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that there is, you know, in the time since Pierre Burton wrote, there is um, a number of families have published the memoirs of their grandmother or great-grandmother. Um, you know, there's a lot of letters and papers that have come to light. And so for somebody like Anna de Graff, who was probably unknown um, to Burton, you know, her memoir came out in, I guess, the 1980s or 1990s. Um, you know, I'm looking for somebody that just has a lot of material to work with. There's other kind of iconic characters. Um, Klondike Kate might be one or Diamond mm-hmm. Tooth Gertie or some of these people. There's just not the depth of material where you can write, a, you know, with a lot of confidence if you're going to keep it to nonfiction and if you're going to try to tell a narrative and not just say that these people existed, but try to describe what did they do from one day to the next? What did they do from one hour to the next on, mm-hmm. on specific days? And so I was trying to find a mix of those famous and not so famous people where there was so much material that I could very confidently you know, write up, um, you know, not just what they did, but like what it felt like to be there. Uh, Belinda Mulroney is a good example. You know, She gave an oral history to a writer and then the book was never published, but there is at the Bancroft Library in California, just page after page after page of her words to her story. That means you can, um, you know, you can really mine that yeah. for, you know, in some cases, what she was saying in the dialogue and really recreate it. Um, you mentioned like Klondike Kate, and then there, there's others that you kind of touch on very briefly in the book. Was there anybody that you wanted to maybe look at more? But like, like you said, the, the research or the uh, the information just wasn't there to make it feasible. But there was somebody like that you wanted to have in the book, but just just couldn't. Well, I think the the biggest examples are uh, Skookum Jim and Kate Carmack, his sister, and the other indigenous voices in the book, where we have some. And there has been a lot of work, especially um, trying to get as much about Kate Carmack, um, her, uh, um, you know, in Clinkett, her name is Shaw Claw, but George Carmack couldn't pronounce her name. And so he renamed her Kate, you know, that is like, that is just indicative of kind of her whole life and experience. Yeah. We, we have stories about her, but we have almost nothing in her own voice. I found one letter at the University of Washington archive uh, that I managed to include. But, you know, the indigenous voices was really difficult. Now there has been good work on oral histories and Skookum Jim's role in the discovery of the gold has always been in the Clinkett oral histories. Um, I wish I wish there was more. I wish I could have fleshed that out further, but I kind of, I, I got about as far as I could with the sources that I had. 
Um, in regards to research, what was that like? Like, was it a long process where, where some people, like you said, Sam Steele easier than others? Uh, how did you go about doing the research for the book? Well, the first step was to identify, you know, 10 or 11 people that I thought would best uh, tell the story. There was, I mean, nobody saw the whole thing. Like you said, Robert Henderson was involved in the beginning and, and missed out. And then Belinda Mulrooney sees a piece and Sam Steele sees a piece. There was no way to pick a single character to tell the whole story. So I, I knew I was going to have to find a few that would each get a piece of it. Um, but then when I, I mean, I'm again, I'm coming at this as a journalist and as a storyteller and somebody who's a narrative nonfiction writer, not as a historian. So my goal was never to discover some brand new thing that nobody had seen before or write it through an academic lens and like a new way. My goal was just to tell a great story. And so I'm, the research is, again, finding that material, but then I mean, I know how to do interviews and I know how to recreate a scene out of those interviews. And I really looked on the oral histories or the memoirs as my interview notes. So instead of me having my own transcript from an interview, it's essentially like somebody else conducted it. And I maybe I, I would have asked maybe different things, but I you have the material you have and, and you try to do the best you can with it. And um, I think for me, looking at their words as interview notes was was a really important step uh, because then it gave me a frame okay this is what they say happened what other secondary sources do i have to corroborate what happens and then how do i put all these pieces together uh, and then so once you're done the research you start uh, writing the book how did you go about writing it how did you kind of look to fill in maybe some of the gaps uh you know especially during times where there might not have been a lot of information or maybe journal entries or things like that how did you go kind of about filling in those little gaps and and writing uh the book uh, from start to finish yeah i went one character at a time and kind of not in order because i was so taken with anna de Graff's story i actually wrote hers first um, and then I think Tap and Adney's, and then I kind of started at the beginning again and, and started to work my way through. Um, I mean, I just immerse myself in the material um, to the point where like I'm dreaming about it and thinking about it in the shower, and that's how I know when it's time to get the words out. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's when, when you have a gap you have to decide if you're going to believe somebody else's version of the story or if you're going to, um, I don't know, sometimes skip that gap or you're going to try to fill it in with other, you know, with another treatment. I mean, some of the gaps, for example, Jack London, who did the Chilku Trail, mm-hmm. he wrote later in his life about running the Whitewater, um, like the White Horse Rapids, for example, on the Yukon. But he didn't write about every step of the journey. And his, uh, he had a companion who was with him who did keep a journal. And so we know where he was every day, but not necessarily what he saw every day. Mm-hmm. Well, I hiked the Chilkoot myself to get, you know, to get my own impressions. And so, you know, what was the view like from this place? Could you see the glacier or not? What was it like to go down this trail? What does this canyon look like? I mean, some of that I could give him from my own observations because mm-hmm. I stood in the place and was able to see it and the land hasn't changed. I mean, the trees have gr- grown back, but the land hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now, like I said, it's a, it's a really great book. I've been really enjoying it. I'm, uh, like I said, I'm just at, I 
I've kind of got to the John Healy's part and then I, I see that Soapy Smith is coming up next. Um, but it, it's been very interesting to read right from, you know, the start where Robert Henderson impales his leg right up to this point. Um, what's next? What, what are you thinking of what writing about next? Oh, that's, well, <laughs> that can sometimes be a harder question than you think. Uh, have I gotten it past my agent uh, and my publisher? Um, I don't know. I continue to write non, the thing that draws, continues to draw me to nonfiction is, is kind of two things. One is um, the sense when I stumble upon a story that I can't believe is both true and I've never heard of and just has these extremes like the Klondike story does. And then the other one is, I guess what I tell myself is, you know, what can I, um, you know, what, what can I investigate and bring back and, and demythologize? What can I, what, what's out there that's like not Googleable, but, you know, mm -hmm. would really have an ad. And what I mean by that is, you know, I also, uh, a lot of my journalism say is in Africa or the Middle East, and you're going to places where you really have to go and interview people and find out things that's like kind of not on the internet otherwise. And, and I don't know, this may be a funny way to think about it, but in 2021, where so much information is immediately available, um, you know, going to a place and finding out things that aren't knowable otherwise, and then trying to tell that story in the best way possible, that's what continues to, uh, to fascinate me about nonfiction. And that's, I mean, that's even what drew me to the Klondike is knowing that these stories were in archives um, that all this new work had been done, but there was a way to tell the story in a new way. And it wasn't just dancing girls and happy prospectors and smiling Mounties, that it was also this like really truly miserable experience, not just on the travel, but also, you know, the violence against the women uh, up in Dawson City, the violence against indigenous people trying to, like I said, demythologize and tell a fuller story that's what continues to motivate me in my writing. And so the trick is going to be to find out whatever the next version of that is. Absolutely. And, you know, the uh, horrible things like, uh, like you write about, like the dead horse trail or, you know, the number of people who had to eat their dogs. Uh, I have a dog, so, you know, I, don't, I never like reading about that stuff, but, but it, it is absolutely I, I something too, that happened. <laughs> I just try to remember yeah. that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, all of these things really did happen. And I mm -hmm. just, I guess the thing that, again, continues to just, you know, light the fire for me is to know that a story has been sugarcoated mm -hmm. um, and, and the details of it may be forgotten and sometimes purposely, you know, mythologized. And to strip that away and say, no, the, here's the reality of what happened. And let's face that. And this is how indigenous people were lynched and this is how women were abused and this is how people were murdered and froze to death um and i so i think that's where hopefully i add value is trying to um tell a fuller picture of what really happened absolutely like i said with uh with edmonton when we used to have klondike days we used to celebrate edmonton obviously being part of the trail but ignoring the fact that the vast majority of the people who took the edmonton way never even made it to the Klondike. It was like you said, it was an extra like thousand kilometers to go. It was a horrible way to go, even though it was overland. Right. Right. And uh, I mean, people were reduced to trying to cook their shoes and most of those, you know, uh, I mean, most people on the Edmonton trail died of scurvy. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, and again, they died anonymously. I would, 
read, um, I mean, I spent a lot of time reading hometown newspapers in this time. And first they would obviously report that gold was discovered. But then as the months went by, there would be little snippets like six people from this town in Ohio, you know, drowned in a river and here were their names. And then that's it, you know, and they, they would report it a little bit, but um, nobody, including me, has really tried to go through all of those newspapers and all of those hometowns and write down everyone's name who drowned essentially anonymously in the river. I mean, but there was, but the people on the trail would tell a story that they would just see people face down or see people lying on the side of the trail frozen to death. Uh, and then they just kept going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it, like I say, it's a fascinating story. I've always been interested in the Klondike and I did an episode on it on my podcast back in uh, January because it is something that a lot of people are interested in. And, and the book was fantastic for really diving deep into into the lives of these people, both you know the ones who got rich and the ones who had a horrible experience like, uh, like Dietz. Um, I guess the, the last question is, where can people find the book? Where can they find you if you have a website, uh, any social media, anything like that? Yes, thanks. So you should be able to buy the book at bookstores across Canada, uh, and you can buy it online. Um, the You can find me at briancastner.com. Kastner is C-A-S-T-N-E-R. There's links to other books and ways to buy it there. And I spend, as a journalist, I spend way too much time on Twitter. So I'm at <laughs> Brian underscore Kastner. Uh, that's where all the, you know, the latest and best stuff is. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website. We will find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden. Doug Campbell. Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randa McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, You can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.